Good morning. It's really wonderful to be here with you today. And uh, our guests today are uh, Chris Nicklin, who is the chairman of the Western Cape Beekeepers Association. Bee yes. Industry Association. Please. Thank you very much. And Riette van Sale, who is also on the board. Yes, thank you. Welcome. We really want to hear from you about your association and what its activities are and and also to hear about what the situation is with the bees. And we've been trying to get this together for a while now, so it's, <laughs> it's happened. Yes. Well, beekeepers are always busy, so they've always got an excuse not to be available <laughs> just when you want them. <laughs> yes, so would you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your involvement with the beekeep the, the bee industry? Sure, Louise. I've actually had a, a lifelong interest and passion for bees and beekeeping. I actually started beekeeping as a school kid in Cape Town. Um, <clears throat> I lived, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, what was in a pretty well, a semi-rural area called Constantia. Um, and there was a group of hives in a derelict vineyard quite close to my house. And I, I was a bit of a dreamer as a kid. And I used to spend hours in front of the hive just watching the bees come and go. And I remember some of the neighborhood kids used to uh, throw rocks at the hives and get stung. And I was delighted when they got stung. <laughs> um, and I was always fascinated, you know, what went on in this hive. And uh, it, it, out of just a, a passing interest, as I say, it turned into an absolute passion. Um, I ended up uh, by the age of 16, 17, doing my first pollination job, uh, taking a hundred hives. My, my elder brother drove the truck to Elgin. It was quite a precocious thing to do as, uh, as a kid, a, a pollination job in the apple orchards in, in Elgin. Uh, the truck broke down on the way home uh, in the middle of the night and I had to go to school the next morning. So that was an absolute fiasco. Um, and then I moved into the media world uh, but always retained, as I say, this passion for beekeeping, went overseas for 10 years, um, came back and was determined that one day I would be a commercial beekeeper. And that's where I am at the moment. So passion remained and you came back from all of that and that's what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, initially I didn't involve myself in the structures of the Western Cape Bee Industry Association. I was just a rank and file member, um, just got on with building my bee operation, which is in the order for in the area of about, <coughs> excuse me, about a thousand hives now. Um, at some point I was invited by a, a committee member of WCBA to, to come onto the board. And because of my media background, I thought that I could play a role, make some kind of contribution in terms of raising the profile of the Western Cape Bee Industry Associ Association. Uh, what I'm intrigued by is absolute fascination among the broader public about bees and beekeeping. And uh, in fact, uh, I've had more interest in my work as a beekeeper than I ever did as a journalist. Um, people come up to me all the time asking me all sorts of mm. questions, and, and uh, I'm sure Riette will attest to this. Uh, people, uh, and it really plays uh, into our hands in some respects, that the people are really genuinely interested in bees and beekeeping. Um, and they, they all want to make some sort of contribution to the welfare of our, our subspecies, our indigenous subspecies of honeybee, Apis millifricapensis, the Cape honeybee. So what do you think sparked this huge interest that's been going on I think it is probably concern about the environment as a whole. Um, and you're probably aware that in the last 15, 20 years, there's been some very big problems with honeybees 
particularly in the, in the Northern Hemisphere, Western Europe and North America. North America, particularly the United States, where they do beekeeping literally on an industrial scale. I mean, we, we can't even begin to measure up it's so big. And suddenly we became aware this was the, the early 2000s, mid-2010, uh, I think, around about 2012, when the world was becoming more familiar with this concept called colony collapse syndrome. And you started having Time magazine having front page cover articles about uh, if our honeybees die out, uh, humankind will follow quite soon. And uh, they erroneously quote Albert Einstein saying that it was actually some other uh, eminent scientist or, or philosopher. But nonetheless, whoever said that was absolutely right. And I think it is just, as I say, a, a growing awareness in the last 15, 20 years that has been coupled with what is happening to uh, our planet. Okay. Ria, tell us a little bit about what you do and where yeah. you're from. Yeah, I'm currently living in the Rubik Valley, beautiful Rubik Valley, and also full-time beekeeper. I've been, my whole life I've been an entrepreneur, always doing small businesses, but I believe that God has made me a plant and he bowled me to, you know, when he assembled me or bowled me or whatever, he he meant for me to be a planter, somebody to start things. And I can see the potential in people and um, in business. But I was not into beekeeping. In fact, I was one of the doomers. Whenever I saw a bee, it needed to be doomed. <laughs> and I'm flippin' scared of them, and they, they stay. it really hurt when these things. So my husband... Uh, he contracted some, um, and he as from, like Chris, from a very young age, he was involved with bees. So he brought and bring the bees to the guest house. And then I had to look after them. And one day uh, I'd read on the internet, do this and do this, uh, that. And my, the KB don't want that. They're not internet bees. They're total different bees than the others. <laughs> so um, nothing worked. I remember once they he bring a swarm and the others rob him. So I went to the internet and they said, but a white towel, you need to wet the towel. And I put it over the hive. And you know, the other bees were not interested. They don't care that I did it. They find a way in. And the ones and the inside that has been robbed, they just want to get out. So they was dying like in masses there trying to get out of stress, so it doesn't work. Whatever the internet say, it doesn't work with our bees. Um, and one day I saw a bee walking on our pavement. You could see to which hive, because I space the size very uh, far away, with big fat pollen pockets, and it walked. So I, I took my cell phone, I picked up the um, bee, so I let it walk on the cell phone, and they don't like black normally. But she walked and fell off on the other side. And then I take a photo and I said to a video and I said to my husband, your bee is ill. What should I do? Because, I mean, I need to look after these bees, but I don't know fig what to do. I didn't even have clothes. Um, and he said to me, go back to the house and go put this photo on the, on the TV. Because I can't see so well. I can see, but my close vision is not. And a cell phone is, in any case, very small. So... As I put it on the TV and he said to me, look at the wings. The wings was the, the ends was, it was, um, what do you call it in English? It was a flarde. You know, it, it was torn. It was torn. It was really torn. She couldn't fly anymore. And I think that was a single thing. 
I got so much respect for this bee because I could relate to that. She really worked herself to death. And I could relate to that. Because whatever you, a woman, you, you have to look after the kids. You have to look after the house. And with me in business, I could understand this drive to work, to achieve goals. And so I bought my first bee suit, but I didn't know a lot. And then I tried to find other beekeepers to mentor me. And that's how I got involved in the bee industry. I met people. Um, at that stage, I was close to my 50s. Well, or in my 50s, I don't know whether I was 48 or 50 away, but it was in that phase. And funny enough, it's not always the, the oldest or the biggest that, that you get, uh, that, um, mentor you, um, or will help you assist. It's everybody. You need to listen here and you need to listen there. And I remember a 21 year old beekeeper, um, Dian, uh, from Swellendam. I met him at the event and we two were hanging there over a crate and chatting. What do you do? What do I do? And it's, and him spontaneously telling the mistakes that he made or the whatever he find work with his bees. And I listen and then I go back and exactly what Chris said, I observe. And just by observing your hive, it's like looking at a lot of kids. They're funny. They're really funny. And, um, you know, the guards, whenever they, they are doing guard duty the first time, it's like you work with a lot of green. They just come into the job and they are so, passionate about doing the job, right? So they got him there and then they saw a bee coming in. They can't wait for him to land here. No, 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 that's on a fly and meet him there. It's that kind of thing. So that's where, how my passion grow and how I in the end get involved in the association now for five years already, five or six years already that I'm um, into the bee industry. And I, um, I'm quite excited about the direction that the bee industry, the Western Cape bee industry is going into and what we achieved. And I'm quite excited about my beekeepers and absolutely passionate about the Capensis, the Cape Bee. I think it's the most unique bee it is. And I think it's the most stunning bee to work with. Um, she, she really don't mind a lot of mistakes that we do. It's like as if she sometimes think, you know, you're so stupid, but let me correct it for you. Okay. So it would be interesting to know, um, we'll get to all the challenges that are facing are facing the bee, um, facing bees in general. But tell us a little bit about the, the association. How many members do you have? How's it grown over time? Just a what, little what bit of background. What do you, yeah? Beekeepers? Um, do you want me to speak to that, Riet? Yes, please. Um, <clears throat> well, Riet has actually been with WCBA quite a bit longer than I am, but. Um, I've had quite a, a, a unique insight into the workings of it because it's, uh, it, I, I, I've uh, literally had to learn very quickly. I, I joined WCBA uh, about two or three years ago and then within the, as an ordinary member, as I say, and then was asked to join the we committee. We see his potential um, it's been around for more than a hundred years, interestingly enough. I think it was wow. founded in about 1912. Um, and you can delve back this, a, a wonderful back collection of okay. South African bee journals uh, that's housed at the Agricultural Research Council in, in Stellenbosch. Okay. So you can really, as I say, delve back into the past of uh, beekeeping history in the, in the Western Cape. Looking at, on it back now, um, it all quite quaint. It was literally an association of uh, 
more often than not, middle-aged, aging people who would meet for <laughs> coffee and exchange views around beekeeping. And uh, but I mean, that was a different era. Yes. Fast forward a hundred years, um, it's really a vital industry now, and uh, I'm struck how relatively few people, and I, I, I use the word ignorant with caution, but who are generally completely unfamiliar of exactly what the beekeeping industry involves. There's this assumption that if you keep bees, it's just honey. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and then the moment you tell people, that's really just a bit of a sideline business. Our fundamental role is, is commercial beekeepers mm. is to provide the critically needed uh, pollination services in the Western Cape uh, for our agricultural sector that we know is, is growing inexorably all the time. And uh, so a lot of the focus of the Western Cape bee industry these days is around pollination. What can we do to ensure that we are able to provide uh, a professionally uh, or a professional pollination operation that the farmers can respect and know that they are getting value for money out of them. Pollination is not just simply a matter of taking a, a hive into an orchard and dumping it there. The hives uh, have to be of a particular standard. These are standards that have been developed by the Western KP Industry Association. They've evolved, if you like, over a period of time uh, to a point that we really believe that we know exactly uh, what an optimal pollination unit is for um, the agricultural sector. It's not just a hit and miss affair. Um, so part of our role, as I say, is to develop these kind of policies as the WCBA, to oversee the industry. Um, we're now standing uh, at around about 250, 300 members uh, throughout the Western Cape. The majority of our members are hobbyist beekeepers, but incredibly enthusiastic. Uh, it's, it's, it's astonishing when people immerse themselves in beekeeping, how or like myself, how completely absorbed they, they, they become in it. I always make this point to, to people that after the human being, the next most researched and written about creature on mm. earth is the honeybee. Mm. There's absolutely reams of, of information and the research is ongoing all the time. We still don't know a, a lot about honeybees, particularly as, as Riet says, uh, our indigenous honeybee, Apis mellifera capensis. So, we're, not, we're no longer just that cosy little association of members getting around, as I say, for a, a morning fate to rise, raise some funds and, and, and drink coffee and exchange views. We really have become what I believe is a vital organisation, um, cutting edge in many respects in uh, trying to understand and trying to impart this information among all our members and the wider public about how we, we, we manage uh, the Cape Honeybee, uh, how, because we work with the Cape Honeybee, it's obviously in our uh, interests that we do whatever we can to preserve or conserve the Cape Honeybee. So essentially, we, we've become the ambassadors, if you'd like, for the bees and the beekeeping industry um, uh, in the Western Cape. So, okay, so that's the Western Cape. Is there other associations in the other provinces that do the same? And how are you guys funded or just out of out of curiosity you can answer. Uh, historically south africa has been divided up into regional associations um, which fall under an umbrella grouping called sabio the south african bee industry organization so i think there are about uh, 
eight or nine uh, regional associations, um, Riet. Yeah. Um, I stand corrected if, if I've got it wrong. Um, it's a poorly funded industry in terms of uh, in terms of its operational basis. We largely exist on uh, the membership fees from our members. Uh, and some money trickles down from government, it goes into Sabia, as, as I say, the umbrella uh, organization that represents uh, the regional <laughs> represents the regional associations. But uh, Riet is a, a member of the Sabio committee, so she mm. can probably explain Sabia's functioning more better than I can. Yeah, Sabia is more the governing body of the bee industry and working on different levels to... to um, is, you know, those things that we've got in common, like the import of honey, um, of the fight for fake honey, the bee forage working group, and then also liaise with um, different government bodies, as well as um, liaising with the different um, agricultural bodies, because obvious bees are involved in agriculture and everywhere it is, and then also liaising with the other countries and on with the different researchers and, and universities. So that's mainly their body. Their, um, in Western Cape, I just want to say, we are not the only association. We might be the biggest, but there is a, a Southern Cape Bee Industry Association. They are in in Mosulbay, that area. Kubus Force is their chairman and Andre de Jager, the vice chairman. The two, we two associations work together and we've got a working agreement between us so obviously we work together to better the 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 way the pieces the kb okay so uh, and, uh, just, just, don't you just want to unplug your mic for me and just clip that one straight to your sorry clip which one this one yeah because now it sounds fine again like they had a bit of a static coming through uh, or, mm -hmm. or just fiddle with that wire and see if it's connected correctly on, on the, the plug-in part. No, no, no it's not. It's, uh, I'm checking. Is it working here. okay? Or? It sounds fine now, but yeah. it had some. Okay. Had a lot of crackling coming through. Maybe put it there. Might come. That might be the one. Okay. I don't know. Anyway. So okay. just on the that. funding, um, it is as Chris said, we are really uh, strapped with funding. So our only funding is from members' um, membership fees. And that's straight through the bee industry, all associations. We don't really get um, much other funding. If we may ask, how much is that? Western Cape charges 450 rand for a membership fee for the year. We are quite, quite uh, very active with events and trainings and a website where we regularly, Chris is responsible for news articles and news things. And whenever we do events, um, we load. We try to as much as possible load those um, recordings for our members to see. Mm -hmm. And this year, in the past few years, we never charge for any um, trainings, so that the public and the rest of the interest beekeepers that is not part of the association uh, that they can come and learn. Because it's important that everybody know as much as possible about this bee. And we really try to work close with the researchers to get the latest information. We had a record, we were closely with Western Cape uh, Department of Agriculture. We've got actually got a stunning relationship with them. Most as well people as, do. Yeah, as well as ARC. Uh, Mike, Mike also our only bee researcher in the Western Cape. And I think he is also, he's just um, 
a walking encyclopedia and we need to hang on his lips actually. So, yeah, we really tried to work. um, The association really tried to open doors for our members, for their business to grow, whether it's in um, honey production and in exporting of honey, whether it's in forage or whether it's in pollination, because we are the biggest pollination area in South Africa. So that that brings me to a question that I was thinking about, and that is um, if you're talking about the evolution of um, the association from, you know, when it was like a get-together and have coffee to today where there's a, a dire need for additional pollination services, has the membership grown um, in, in tandem with that need? And you were saying some people aren't members. How, how is the, the whole industry looking? I know they're not all, they're not all members, but just holistically what's, what's happened in the last 20 years as far as a pollination services being available? The membership does tend to fluctuate from year to year. And I think this is the case probably with all regional associations. And often it's got to do with people's personal financial circumstances. Sometimes 450 rands or whatever it is is just a call too far for them in a, in a particular year. So we do puzzle uh, at times why people aren't part of the WCB. They're very, I personally know beekeepers who provide pollination services who are not part of the WCBA structures. And obviously, like I ask them why, and they just say, I, I want to do my own thing. So it's not obligatory to belong to the WCBA, but we like to believe that what we're doing now is making it more attractive for people who provide something like pollination services, that they are getting, as I say, the up-to-date knowledge of what is best pollination practice. And we can only uh, attract uh, uh, and recruit more and more members uh, the more that we are seen to be the, the standard in the industry, or the, the organization that sets the standard in the industry based on science. Um, so it's, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight that we just going to, our membership is just going to swell massively. It's an organic process. Uh, but as I say, we, we hope that our membership will continue to grow as they understand the benefits or appreciate the benefits of the hard work that the, the committee on the WCBA is doing. Yeah, the, um, it really evolved to something so big. We are only 10 on the committee. And you can ask Chris, we, t- we sometimes, the only time that we two had time to communicate with each other is late at night. Um, it really invo- evolved in so many different um, uh, sub-organizations that we had to, you know, you have to fight for the bee. We had to um, inform the public. So there's kind of a public PR job as well. The association saw the need for that. And we discussed it at our AGM um, with the committee, with our members. And we are now going to move from association to public benefit organization. Uh, to yeah, So that we can then lobby for a certain cause and do projects there. And you can see as what happened the past few years is that people, the public, start believing us in what we do. Because people need to trust in South Africa, unfortunately. They need to trust you before they give you money. And that we experience that this is where they are now. People trusting us. And they trust us with their money. So we are moving to a public benefit organization that we can receive donations, hopefully later on, and 
give a tech tax exemption. So that will bring in money for more projects. And that we can apply for funding, yeah. which we, we can't as a, yeah. just a regular okay. uh, NGO at the we, Yeah, we really need to, the fake honey thing, we need to help Savio. Uh, we also got a, a it's, it's our responsibility as well. We need to work on that. We really need to fight for our beekeepers and the Western Cape honey. We've got one of the most diverse honeys in the world. The Western Cape beekeepers did very well the past um, competitions. They actually won Best in Africa where judges felt that those honeys could compete in the best in the world. So we need to open doors for our beekeepers to take the Western Cape honey further. We need to... Um, uh, fight for the West, uh, for the Capensis B. We need to be the mouth and speak on their behalf. And and that's uh, in the end we have to uh, uh, employ more people to assist us and to tackle these issues on a professional. And that's so you, you will see it's actually a diverse business actually start to be the association become more a business than um, and there's a lot of work to do. There's really a lot of work in the industry to do. So you, sounds fascinating. I want to ask you to take it one step back. Fake honey, tell us about fake honey. What are you talking about? Um, <clears throat> well, can I just start off by saying that fake honey is a problem around the world. It's, it's a global scam. And that's because honey is a high value food. Um, but it's one of the three most adulterated foods in the world. The other two are milk and olive oil. Honey is third. Um, and people see it as an opportunity, you know, to um, dilute, bulk it up, as we say, with cheap uh, syrups like corn or rice syrup. Um, you get the other outright fake honey, or you get the honey that's just been adulterated, where uh, they, as I say, they bulk it up, particularly honeys originating in Asia. Uh, and unfortunately, at the moment, South Africa is absolutely swamped with uh, this imported honey, much of which is of dubious origin. Um, so it's a, it's a huge problem for our industry because it has created a crisis of confidence in honey as a product mm -hmm. in our shops. Uh, people genuinely don't know whether they're buying pure honey or not. Um, and I'm afraid to say I think some of the big supermarket chains that are being mm here. -hmm. Yeah, that there is a complete lack of interest, if you like, um, in the actual origin of the honeys and what is in there. Um, so in, the problem is the importation of this, this, this honey, uh, not necessarily fake, but honey that has been adulterated. It really puts downward pressure on the, the local market in terms of pushing that price down. The supermarkets, and I, I don't necessarily want to cast them as villains here, but uh, as I say, they certainly have a role or have, bear some responsibility in terms of just how much dubious honey is uh, in the South African market. Um, that, we, that they want to sell this inexpensive honey at whatever it is, the price per kilogram. So when you come along with your, as a South African producer, with your pure South, Afri as pure South African honey, and say it's such and such amount, they immediately turn around to you and say, oh, but I can get it much cheaper from abroad. So we have but, the, but they sell it at the local price. They sell it, yeah, but you can still, uh, you know, and I'll cite a supermarket now. You, you go into checkers and you see that very often honey is uh, discounted, one of their, their weekly discounts, where they, they will sell a half a kilogram of honey for around about 59 rands a, a, a bottle. And in South Africa, we cannot produce honey at that price. 
Um, so it's doing a massive disservice to the local bee industry, beekeeping industry. And you try to join, help, help the, the movers and shakers to join the dots by saying, uh, if South African beekeepers are not able to get a realistic price for their honey, and it's, as I say, it's, it's not necessarily a, a, the mainstream revenue for a beekeeper, pollination is, but nonetheless, it's, it's still subsidized funds a beekeeper's operation, the sale of honey. But if they're not able to achieve a particular uh, cost point for their honey, it'll drive them, it'll contribute to them driving, out of, driving them out of business. It makes the beekeeping industry ultimately unsustainable. And that has a knock-on effect. There are no beekeepers around to provide pollination services because the honey market has been uh, eroded with all this, this either fake or adulterated honey from abroad. Then we can have a bigger problem with pollination and, and the lack of or food security in South Africa. There's this, this huge drive towards sustainability, but economic sustainability is also sustainability. Absolutely. If, if, as I say, if, if uh, beekeepers can't... Uh, earn sufficient money for their honey. It's going to it's going to drive them out of business. So, as you're suggesting, the the business the business models that we follow will eventually become economically unsustainable. So, I see a lot of there's been a couple of people that popped up on social media um, that is doing bee tourism. Is that doing a good thing for the industry? Is it is it you know about uh, it? Uh, AP, yes, yes, I do know about it. Um, the concept of AP tourism has been borrowed from abroad. Um, it's quite um, extensive in parts of Eastern Europe. Um, I believe that AP tourism, it's done on a very limited basis in South Africa, but I believe that it could uh, contribute to the local tourism sector because We've been talking about this unique honeybee that we have here mm -hmm. in, the, in, in the Western Cape, the pensis that pretty much occupies the famous biome, co-evolved, probably the only bee in the world that's actually co-evolved on its own plant kingdom, uh, famous. Um, and so there's, there's a terrific backstory with our, with our Cape honeybee. And I believe that properly conceived, properly developed, mm -hmm. Bee tourism, AP tourism, whatever you want to call it, uh, could be viable. It's it's still probably in its infancy in South Africa. I'm just trying to think of how to get the public more informed about this because if if I guess that it's like buying fruit. If you if you don't tell the consumer that this this particular apple is a so and so variety and that grape is a so and so and this. Uh, Clementine is a this so and so. They just don't know. Mm -hmm. They see a red apple and a green apple and a yellow one, and they pick whichever one. But and I think the same is with honey. It is a lot more difficult mm. to distinguish on on the shelf. But the general Mrs. Jones, I would say, walks into it if you want to call it a checkers or Woolies or a uh, pick and pay, and they will pick the honey that's on special for the week. Mm. Mm. Well, as Riet was saying, uh, we are blessed as beekeepers in the Western Cape with being able to produce probably one of the most diverse ranges of honey in the world. Uh, we have a unique honey, obviously, Feinbos honey. Uh, and I believe that if that's properly marketed, um, it could become almost as well known as the famous Manuka honey from New Zealand. You're probably aware of Manuka honey, which oh. uh, has been scientifically investigated in terms of uh, 
its, its <coughs> potential pharmaceutical properties. For instance, it's well known for treating stomach ulcers. And the New Zealanders have absolutely cornered the market with what could be described as a rock star honey. And Manuka honey achieves huge amounts um, uh, in, in shops around the world. People pay uh, way over the level of, of other honeys yeah, because it has, it, 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 it has these, as I say, pharmaceutical attributes. We need, we need research to be done on feinbos honey and what the particular properties of that are. But I believe that if we go down that route and are able to promote feinbos honey as this unique honey with certain beneficial properties, we could have a manuka on our hands. Well, it's like my father always says, my, my, my dad's got a saying that paper is willing to carry. Yeah. yeah. And then you'll get the people that just yeah. slap on feinbos honey onto yeah. any yes. bloody bottle of honey. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. it, it, and I, I consume a lot of honey in my house because I don't like to drink sugar in my coffee. I drink honey in my coffee. And I've got a friend who's a beekeeper, so I, yeah. I tend to get honey from him. Um, and I'm not a fan of feinbos honey, mm -hmm. me particularly. I like the lighter colored honeys, the, yeah. the gum, and they, they taste better to me. So it is a, it, it is a unique taste. Just well, so I was going to say, one, man, one man's meat yes. is another's poison. Yes. But, yes. but uh, I must add that famous honey does come in quite a diverse yeah, yeah, range yeah. Of, of flavors. But it, it might taste. also be just because I've, the famous honeys that I've bought was from a shelf with a sticker on that said famous. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, I think. I need to invite you to our Nampu Bredansdorp. Okay. We will be there. The school tent will be a big display of the Western Cape honeys. And you can see on the Wednesday, you can see how we how the judges judge it. We'd love to and, be there. Um, on the Thursday, we actually invite you to our prize giving. And there will be a honey tasting all the Western Cape honeys. And you will see feinbos is from light to dark, depends on which one, which area and which one you got. Because feinbos is actually every honey in the feinbos biome. But while a repens could be a lighter honey, more thinner one, and certain of the other honeys are dark and like molasses. So this big diversity of feinbos honey is there. Um, but obvious now, because we've got this unique Feinbos honey, this will also be then the most sought after honey exactly for these people that do adulteration, because the taste um, will, um, uh, uh, it will cover the, because the, what they do, they boil sugar, sugar water, and then you just add either apple juice or um, lemon juice, to get it that thickness, because that's the only thing that we always said, try to check for the thickness. So there's, there's actually, they can fake it to such an extent that you won't know if it's real and if it's not. And it's not always um, if it's product of South Africa that you're not buying fake. The price is actually the best indication. Because how can people pay honey for 45 rand or 49 rand or 35 rand even or 25 rand. Check Facebook marketplace. Mm. There's no ways that they can do that. And there's honeys that you know for a fact that honey is not in South Africa. How the hell can they um, make it here? So there's, and even um, make no mistake, I'll also register for a beekeeper and make honey if I can make a quick buck. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. My integrity is, um, won't allow it. 
and my respect for the bee because I know what it cost. It took a lot of honey that that bee need to consume to build out that wax in which he can make his honey. So it's a price. They pay with their life for that honey that you eat. But um, it's the bees are master blenders. So if we, what we try as beekeepers, um, actually if I say they pay with the price, uh, their life is not, it's incorrect. They actually, if you can extract that honey without damaging that comb, they don't have to work so hard. So we need to get practices and, and if you don't abuse your bees, they don't work so hard. So there's, there's ways, everybody can jump on the save the bee thing. But even if they do that, they still abuse the bee. If you work with your bee, and the focus is on the why the bee is so special, and not what material gain I can get out of it. I've got no problem with that, but work for your bee. And the, the sole reason why our bees really is in danger is forage. But you will see people join the project, the Save the Bee project, but they don't even give them, they don't even give the basic thing back. They do not plant. There is, um, the farmers need bees because they need to provide for food security. So we then, everybody need to plant. And it doesn't help you to plant, um, you need to, a beehive need to get two hectares of food for to sustain that year. So this is a hell of a lot of plants. And the only way we can do that is to plant trees. But the time when the bees need it the most is from January, in the warm months, January to June, July. And to find that trees are difficult and really a challenge. So if we really want to help the bee, we need to plant trees, not in certain places right over South Africa. Before we get into the forage uh, discussion in too much depth, and uh, I'm sure this is an area that you do want to question us about, I just want to uh, refer back to the adulteration of honey. In South Africa, we have very clear legislation about what is pure honey and what isn't. We conform with uh, something called the, um, I've forgotten it, the uh, Codex Alimentarius. Yeah which was set up by the United Nations Food and, Food and Agriculture Organization in the 1980s. And it very clearly stipulates what honey is. And most of the world observes that. Essentially, honey has to be the work of the honeybee, nothing else. And our legislation in South Africa conforms with that very clearly. Our big problem in this country is that it's not enforced. Um, I think... Uh, Right to say that, Riaz? Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, adequately it's enforced. enforced. We've got the legislation, but people, uh, you, you walk into pretty much any corner shop in South Africa these days and you'll find blatant uh, fake honey. Well, it's, like, yeah. it's like most things in South Africa. <laughs> but the easiest way, I think you said you buy directly from a beekeeper and you will find people phone me and then they will say, I bought this honey, especially now in winter. And I, I consume it, but I don't get better. So they use it for the medicinal value. The When you've got a sore throat, you eat your honey and it get better. And people will say, but I don't get better. And that's immediately. It's either overheated where the enzymes is, uh, um, is died out or it's sugar, sugar water. So this is a clear indication. So that's why you will, you, 
you know that you get a good thing. People, this is actually the first thing that people will say to you. But it's very tricky to find out. And currently, fax laboratories can tell you which um, um, sugars and what is the water content. But we do not have labs to really, really test if it's fake. Um, that's very expensive. You have to send it through to uh, Germany. Germany. Yeah. So, wow. so we need to get... It's one of our ultimate goals from Sabio, and I think all the industry, everybody should work together to get our own labs in South Africa. What what kind of labs do you need to test that? Uh, the test, I, I can't remember. It's it's a lot of tests that uh, they need to done, and it's quite expensive. Yeah, as Riet says, there are some basic tests that uh, it's got to do with whether it's the, mm. the nectar sources from a C3 plant or a C4 yeah, plant. Yeah. Um, and, and the tests, the current tests that we use in South Africa can... Um, uh, establish whether uh, a honey comes from a C3 plant or a C4 plant. Excuse me, what are C3 and three, it's C4 plants? different plant? sugars. Um, and it, yeah, it's also the it's the, the type of photosynthesis that mm, takes okay. place. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, but the, the uh, honey scamsters um, the world over seem to be always one step ahead of the latest technology in terms of, uh, of, of testing for this yeah. honey. But there is this particular... Uh, lab in Germany that does yeah. the thermonuclear re resonating. It's, it's very scientific, and I'm yeah. not a science yeah. scientist, but it's, it's, yeah. it's super, yeah. some very sophisticated. And testing. and to classify a honey as a fake honey, you have to send it because they are accredited. They are the only well, in South mm. Africa is no accreditation. So really, to say, uh, Della do, uh, they can do pre-tests. A laboratory like Fax can do certain tests on the moisture and that kind of thing. Um, and then you had to, currently in South Africa, we can do, because Western Cape has got a very good pollen lab. I think we've got one of the best pollen labs. Um, <coughs> and then you need to do pollen count. Um, they, they need to do pollen analysis, which is uh, not that expensive, but it is. So in Western Cape, a test will cost you um, anything between five and 7,000 rand, but then you still can't say this is, uh, this is fake honey. It has to be sent because none of our labs here are accredited according to government, then you have to send it to Germany, which make it cost very expensive. And I can tell you now that one of the people that I know for a fact, they, they, this is um, fake honey made in South Africa. A client, a, a, one of the public bought this honey and actually said to him, listen, this kind of honey doesn't grow in South Africa. And it was sold for 45 rand a 500 milliliter bottle in Darling, that area. And um, he phoned me and he said he will pay for the test. But he confronted the person from whom he buy and bought it. And you know, the guy was so arrogant, he actually said to him, um, you're not allowed to call it fake honey, not even in public, unless you test it in Germany and you are going to pay for the test. So this is where we are. This is a battle that we have to fight. It's a costly battle and everybody, um, the associations, the... Epimondia, Sabio, everybody should just jump in and help us with that. That sure. is absolutely fascinating. Because unless you can test, then you can, you know, who's going to stop them? But, but that's, a bit, that's a big thing. The, the, the public are all on this case about getting the right honey. But someone's uh, got to pay. Sustaining it, but nobody wants to pay. And that's why typically people ask us, you know, how can we be sure of whether the honey we're buying is, is pure or not. And uh, we explain the problems. 
around that. Um, but we, we do encourage South African honey consumers to buy honey that is clearly locally sourced, that states on the jar produced in South Africa. Um, and that's, that's as close as we can get. Produced in South Africa by a, a, preferably a trusted yeah. beekeeper. But yeah. uh, the best advice, as I say, that we can give uh, South African honey consumers is make sure that you buy local honey. Um, something now. There's no way that you can keep the supermarkets or the retailers responsible for something like that. It's, look, you know, we're just a relatively small industry body. We don't have that kind of clout. We, we try to do our, our work through lobbying. And what I did want to say um, about WCBA uh, generally is that there has been this shift of just a cosy membership organization to more of a lobbying organization where we approach relevant government departments uh, to uh, ensure such and such is happening. Um, but we, are, we simply don't have that kind of influence to, to change the, the, the supermarket mindset. All we can do is through broadcasts like this, um, articles in the media, just continually um, chip away at uh, the, the message that uh, there is a big problem with, with fake honey in South Africa. Just try it whenever you go and take that uh, bottle of honey off the supermarket shelf, turn it around and interrogate that label in the back. A lot of people just reach, yeah. reach uh, there's a jar that says honey on it and they just reach it. Yeah, because by the time you get there, you're normally in a hurry because the kids are nagging. Exactly. And, and you will also, also see, uh, see on the label, it said honey, but then in small print, say honey, um, uh, honey like sugar syrup or something like that. Um, that is also label. That's not honey and you're not allowed to use the word. So it's actually legislation issues. Um, regarding the supermarkets, I think they are just as ignorant as we are. Some, some of them do it deliberately. Um, the ones that the big supermarkets that are contacted immediately re remove that brand. But you see, they, I think somebody will come and introduce it to them and they will buy it. Because they also don't know. Because they also don't know. And especially if you look at the Facebook market, um, marketplace, how many of those things, because it's easy for me to, because I know the guys and, and I'm suspicious and I know what it costs. So I'm, I'm, I can very easily order the, the, but the general public won't. Okay, so sorry to interrupt you, but okay, so on, on that topic of cost, if whoever listens to this in South Africa <coughs> looks at buying honey and they, and they see, okay, right, well, this is 35 rand for half a kilogram pot, what does it cost? That should immediately... <clears throat> set the alarm bells ringing if you yeah. if you see but, but again, no cost if, if you don't know, you don't know. Yes. So, as a thumbsuck per kilogram, roughly, is it hundred rand, hundred and twenty rand? I, I would safely guess that uh, if you are selling your honey for less than ninety rands a kilogram, you don't have a sustainable beekeeping business. The work that is involved in producing a, a kilogram of honey is absolutely enormous. Never mind what the bees, yes. they, they reckon that uh, a regular 500 gram jar of honey requires bees to visit as many flowers that will, the distance of visiting those flowers will take them twice around the world. So that's a massive amount of work just put in by the bees themselves. Never mind 
the work put into developing the beekeeping infrastructure by the beekeeper. You have to travel vast distances now as beekeepers yes. to keep your bees in areas where there is viable forage. And, and, and Riet mm. was uh, talking about this a little earlier, that we really, we're, we're in a, a huge catch-22 situation here in the Western Cape, that we just do not have sufficient forage for our bees. South Africa is actually a, a relatively unfriendly beekeeping country. We only have a commercial bee industry in South Africa because um, eucalyptus plantations were developed a hundred or so years ago for, for use in, in, in industry and agriculture. But with the regulations around eucalyptus trees, where there's fewer and fewer eucalyptus trees to sustain our bees in the hot, dry summer months. I can give you this example. Um, South Africa consumes in order of, of 8,000 tons of honey a year. We produce, as South African beekeepers, we produce less than 2,000. So we're importing about 8,000 tons of honey a year. Once again, much of, of dubious origin. Greece, for example, um, is a country, what, a tenth the size of South Africa, probably even smaller yet it produces 20,000 tonnes of honey a year, uh, as opposed to our 2,000 tonnes of honey a year, because they've got the right forage. Well, what, is, what is the forage that they use? In, in, in Greece, yes. a range of, of exotics, obviously, that don't grow here in South Africa from... from uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely familiar with the exact... Uh, with the exact bee forage that they have in, 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 in Greece, but it's nonetheless clearly forage that is very suitable for yes. uh, having commercial beekeeping operations. Yeah. And with the water scarcity um, in the Western Cape, forage is a problem, and what you plant is a problem, unfortunately. Um, you, you really have to look to drought-tolerant plants, and for plants to grow, it's going to take time. Mike Alsop always said... Um, we are actually really in a, in a crisis now. Forage-wise, uh, forage we are really in a crisis. So to me, um, this whole fight should all be about planting, planting, planting for the bees. Um, just on the honey thing, you know what? <clears throat> I, uh, Chris said now about the, um, the price and the production cost of the honey. The, that... The, the adulterers will just raise their price. Yes, and the, they want more money. You, you actually, unless you police it, unless there's people that we can do the tests, and unless we can safeguard that for the public, and we, WCBA is looking in ways how to do that. Um, it's a lot of work and a lot of research, and we need to go to the other industries, uh, to the milk, uh, people on the milk board, how do you tackle your adulteration? And, and we need to um, learn from the others, uh, uh, agriculture how, um, associations, how, what do they do? And trying to, because we have to fight, we have to keep on fighting, because the public really don't know. And due to that, and you know, the only way we really can say to the public, you will be sure, is to buy directly from your beekeeper. But what about somebody that doesn't have a beekeeper close by? See, that's the other thing. And also the work for the beekeeper yeah. because he needs to put yeah. the day aside yeah. to yeah. make honey. Yeah. That's right. What we'd like to do is the WCBA has set up some kind of system where we are able to authenticate the honey yeah. of our members by, you know, yeah. for instance, uh, supplying them with a sticker that they, yes, I was thinking they put on a jar and say, this is 
um, authentic Cape honey. But the, once again, it's, you know, how difficult, how practical is it to set up that kind of system? What kind of policing will it require? Um, so it's not just <laughs> simply a matter of imposing a system. There are a lot of practical issues involved that might be um, difficult to implement. But nonetheless, we're looking at this as a possibility and at least, or well, hopefully it'll go part way to challenging the, the dire problem that we have with fake honey. Well, often, well, Louise and I were just having this, this discussion on the way here. Sometimes <clears throat> you've got to crack a couple of omelets, a couple of eggs to make an omelet. Yeah, so yeah. I, and with, and look, I'm, I'm totally against these armchair warriors, but yeah. sometimes mm -hmm. they do get a message across every now and again. Um, is where I think that the supermarkets, be it who they are, need to be called out because they've got all these regulations in place for the farmers mm -hmm. about sustainability and you must use this and you can't use that. And it's the list is getting longer. Yeah, yeah. I think those kind of things, there must be something like that enforced on the supermarkets. Mm -hmm. That them that forces them mm -hmm. to buy local honey produced ethically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they mm -hmm. can buy the other ones, but it must be clearly separated. And I, I, well, I think that's the only way you need to eat them where it is. That was, uh, that was you know, the, um, the inspection of the beekeepers to check that they do ethical beekeeping and even in. <coughs> the hives in the production of honey is one of the things that we thought uh, to incorporate in the Pure Western Cape labor that we are working on. To just get the public to understand that from that labor, we as an association, that you will really get the, the real thing. You can trust it. Um, just on the, on the Western Cape honey, I attended a, a, a at the Sabio AGM, a professor, she's a medical professor, and I stand on the correction, I think her surname is Van Furen, but we're going to bring her to the Cape. She is doing extensively research on Manuka honey, and then obvious, and the medicinal values on it. And then she also did uh, what, the South African honey with it. And she also uh, did the same on propolis, because you know that propolis is antiviral, and it's actually very good medicinal values also for us. But luckily, luckily, the Western Cape beekeepers were the ones sending in the most honey or the, uh, and the most propolis. So, and then on the Manuka, she said, if this is a benchmark for Manuka, nearly all the Western Cape honeys were equal to that. And some of them were even better. I don't want to go into very much. exciting on, yeah. on the medicinal level that they've yeah, yeah in terms of its antimicrobial yeah properties. yeah and, but um, I I chatted to Chris earlier um, well actually a few weeks ago where I said to them this we need to bring her to Western Cape and we need to find out if she know exactly which honeys those were from which areas because this is something that add value to that honey. And I can tell the customer that phone in for Manuka honey that complained about the Manuka that she bought on South Africa, which was actually a fake, um, that I can refer her mm. to that person. And, yes. and it will also help the beekeepers because that's a, a, so in a way it'll give knowledge to the public, but it will also help the beekeepers. And to me, that was quite interesting. We're definitely going to bring them. So, so, so what, what's Manuka? 
What what is is it a type of plant? Is it? A, it's, it's a it's a it's a tree that is um, indigenous to Australasia. Um, you get it both in Australia and New Zealand, but I think in in larger uh, quantities, the prevalence is or the occurrence is much wider there. It's a particular tree, uh, a coastal one of these coastal tea trees. Probably a Port Jackson, <laughs> <laughs> because those things grow here as well. So. <laughs> I can't yeah. see what I can't it was, it was getting to a point in, uh, it became quite a cutthroat industry mm. in, in New Zealand because every beekeeper wanted to be producing manuka honey because it was realising such exorbitant prices. Um, there was even a film made about it, about how <coughs> you really, as a beekeeper, you took life and limb in hand producing manuka honey because everybody was trying to muscle in on, on the market. But it's just, as I say, it's just got this... Uh, world superstar status, rightly or wrongly. Uh, a lot of people joke that the New Zealand beekeepers just got their marketing right. Yes. Uh, well, yes, that, that's quite possible, that's considering right. what you were just saying. Yeah. So there's a huge opportunity. I'm reading between the lines here. Yeah, but the fact is that it, my understanding is that Manuka honey probably is the most scientifically investigated honey, yeah. uh, simply because of the claims that were made about it. Um, but the assumption is that famous honey could have very, very similar properties and we could make equal claim to having a world-class, a superstar honey. So, so you see, the association actually desperately need marketers to come and do some free work for us. And, and, you, get, well, and, and, and you, get, you actually get people that phone you complaining about honey. Yeah, that yeah no, the woman phoned me. She's from Cape Town. She's actually a foreigner. Uh, then um, immigrated to South Africa and she said we bought this Manuka honey in a Cape Town store and it's a product of South Africa and uh, it doesn't and she because she's got a lot of medicinal problems um, and she always used that uh, the fame balls and she felt that it worked and now this honey didn't work after three months she's getting worse and worse so I said to her Manuka's not allowed because they control it Manuka is not allowed to be planted in South Africa, nor manufactured in South Africa. This is fake honey. And that was where we then, and then at the same time, another person also phoned, and that was where we then actually, the, the one um, uh, customer actually approaches the guy where he bought it. And he was, he said to us, if you call it fake honey, you can't do it. The, the customer that complains need to pay, send it to Germany, which is true. Uh, I must admit, that whenever the public phone me about that, I'll give them the names of the Western Cape, um, and the, the government people that control the, or they, yeah, they need to check the leg legislations and the honey legislations and labeling. It's Magdalene Otto von Dallet and the head of the Western Cape uh, government. And really, we, we really get, um, they really help us. So whenever we report it to them, so, so I always ask the client to report it and then CC me in uh, as administrator of admin from Western Cape and I will follow up and they, they go and confiscate it. The, whoever manufacture it is always gone. You can't, you can't find that person, but they really do follow up um, lately. Previously, there was somebody that was subcontracted and we did not get much joy with that. But since um, afterwards, they re the Western Cape from WCDOA, that part of the lake really helped us. And it's a fight with all together. But as I said, they can do certain tests and 
they already have on their database um, certain honeys that they knew this is fake because it was tested already. So, yeah, it helps a lot. But for the final one, and if you remember um, way back, there was Carte Blanche. Yes, I remember that. Was, was that whole thing of, of Manuka honey uh, or, or adulted honey. And at that stage, they said if you pay less than 65 rand, um, this is, you, you can be for sure. But what they did, people just push up the price. The same adulterers still go on. And you, you really had to have a strong um, group that police that. And now with that in mind, the honey market in shops, this last year we find that the honey market just tumbled down. So where people buy from me as a beekeeper myself, I was sold out within two months after my last harvest. But in shops, your honey did not sell. It just gets stuck there. Uh, so, and I sit, um, uh, there's different things that influence it. But the trust in the honey, in, in, in the South African honey, we lost that trust. And we have to work harder to get it. But as you see, how would the public know that their product is, even though it's a South African product? And that's, uh, so there might be beekeepers that's now selling for 75 or 80 rand uh, or 65. Kilo. Uh, just to get rid, because our beekeepers sit with, with lots and lots of stock, which we can't get sold. sold. Um, we can't export it. And the export people want our honey. So we sit while these big amounts are Why can't you export it? Um, I remember the, Yeah, yeah. It's still... It's, a, it's, it's a very grey area. Um, clearly in the past, not enough was done, uh, I believe, by some of our predecessors in terms of really pushing the South African honey as an excellent export commodity. Um, at the moment, we're trying to unblock things to ensure or to establish a, 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 a consistent export market. Because as Riet says, the demand internationally is there. If you look at the European Union, they, they import hundreds of thousands of tons of, of honey. Uh, yeah, even though they, they, they produce a lot of honey themselves. The UK, for example, produces somewhere in the region of uh, 20,000 uh, 20, tons of honey a year, but its internal consumption is 60,000 tons. Wow. So individual countries <laughs> are actually importing uh, a lot of honey, and, and we as South African beekeepers could go... Uh, to some lengths to, to, to fill, to meet that demand. And at least make a couple of bucks on this. So the, main, the main reason currently is that bees are in South Africa classified under plants, which to export you need a phytosanitary certificate. But internationally they see it as an animal which need a veterinary certificate. So SAVI, our governing body, worked with... Um, Dalit, to get it changed to in the law to get a, a, to move us to the animal side, but it was moved to the um, stock theft, not stock theft to um, livestock. Uh, livestock, yeah, which is actually now that law, the livestock law, is actually more to do with the breeding of wild animals, and we don't want to breed with these two bees. Because it's uh, you can't breed with the capensis, and yes. uh, that's not what. So we were actually in the wrong area. So the the wild um, animal group were then um, 
they made a case against government and they won it. So we moved back to plant. So we are now... Um, and Two steps forward and four yeah. steps so back. It's, it's become a bureaucratic yeah. nightmare. So, so yeah. as I say, we're trying to, to yeah. unblock yeah. the... Uh, and we the now just, just need to sit down with government and see what is uh, with a national government, and we will do that, <coughs> and I think they will understand and help us in that, because <coughs> this whole export of honey can open up a lot of doors. If you think of it, if we plant um, uh, bee forage here, the Western Cape, and with our with our unique plants and things, we can the youth has got a huge problem um, um, unemployment and if we can plant uh, forage and and we can start with a project where they plant their own forage and we can um, help them to do their own hives and help them to produce their own honey. Remember, it's not the hive product is not only honey. There's other yes. products. So if we can work with that, and there's there's a potential to help um, unemployment, to help the previously disadvantaged people. One of our members, Ahmad Kazi, is actually he started with five hives. He's now twenty hives. I don't think where he's got more at the moment, and he started making lip balms and skincare products, and actually for his kids. He now has got an online shop, not a shop like we thought, put up shop, and he's doing so well. So in, to such an extent that he had to resign his job and oh. do it full time. So he's making a living out of his 25. I don't know how. Uh, uh, I don't uh, doubt. No, he's coping. Yeah, but clearly what, producing a lot of value what added. I'm, to I'm trying to uh, say to you, he is making candles, he's selling honey, um, he's doing courses at schools. He's, he did a, um, at the Appermondia, he presented his, what he did, he worked with I us. I saw in, that. He worked with us, he started uh, that, with yeah, us okay. in, the, uh, with the, in a presentation that we did in uh, um, WCDOA. Yeah. And he then trained people from Africa. So you see, no, I always said knowledge is power mm. and it doesn't cost you a thing. And it brings in money. So it's not, and that is where we need to get these people to, you see, do you want to buy a new Mercedes with your business or do you want to buy bread on the table? And that's the thing that that's we can the, do. That's where the problem comes in with the young people. Yeah. They, they want to buy Mercedes. the Mercedes. And you know what he also told me is that his, his first product that he made was actually for um, things, yeah, as he said, the eczema cream for his daughter. And then he st start with different things that people see need. And the other thing that impressed me lately, he then start making his lip ice kits and sell that to the public who want to start their own thing. And then another youngster won the AgriForum um, Entrepreneurs Prize with that. So this is actually investing in people and that is what I think we should, we can do with this project. So small, people can at least put bread on their table. Whether they make creams or paints off for the old age home in their town and getting extra money in, put a bread on the table. But at the same time, we can get this wonderful Western Cape honey to go abroad. But we also need to get that to our to the public. The public need to taste our honeys and see the diversity and because that brings respect for you know, it's not me that blend it so well. It's this bees and 
I once had uh, I harvested honey with two um, forages, eucalyptus, a very, very strong eucalyptus flavor, and one of the buhu, uh, that is a fainbos, that is also very strong flavor. And it was my best-selling honey because they masterfully blended. I would never put those two together. Did the bees blend the two of them? Yeah, the bees do it themselves. I just, when they put their stamp of approval on, I just harvest. And, and that was beautiful honey. And it was like a select honey, a, a, a special honey, limited edition. And one of Chris's honey here in Wellington, the his site burned down, is one of his top honey. So, and this, that's what they, they're a master craft. And that's what we need to do. What everything you're telling us is phenomenal. And we're like an hour and 10, 15 minutes in. And we haven't even spoken about <laughs> the forage project that you, that's why I called you. So this is a thing about bees is there's so much information. You wanted to say something though. I, I just wanted to finish off the discussion around honey is that um, in some respects exporting South African honey uh, and honey from the rest of the African continent into the wider world is a no-brainer. In countries like the United States, uh, Western Europe, once again, uh, they are having to, the beekeepers there are having to contend with pests and diseases, particularly a, a, a mite uh, known as Varroa. Uh, and they use antibiotics and other medications to treat their bees. They put uh, these, these uh, substances, these drugs, into their hives. So, inevitably, the honey consuming public uh, in those parts of the world are going to be suspicious about what might be in the honey. Whereas in, in Africa, um, because we, in South Africa, we, we, we don't have to contend with the pests and diseases on the level that they do. In fact, we don't, we generally don't need to treat our, mm -hmm. our bees with, with any, uh, me, any kinds of medication. So it could be a huge selling point um, in terms of the global export of South African and African honey, honeys, that our honeys are not uh, tainted with, with these drugs like honeys elsewhere in the world. Okay. Last question on honey. How do you explain to a three-year-old what honey is? <laughs> uh, it's a long time since I've had a three-year-old, so I'm not sure what I I've would I've got say one, so that's why I'm curious. <laughs> uh, I, well, it's something that would amuse kids, that it's what bee vomit. Yeah, that's what I said to them as well. <laughs> they never it's, see honey anymore. <laughs> it's sweet and tasty, unlike other vomit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always say there's a, there's a cure for seasickness. You must eat a lot of bar ones before you go. It makes it taste better when it comes up. No, but the, the, yeah, well. the beautiful thing is that um, the bees has got a separate honey tummy. <laughs> so it's not like, okay. yeah, so the honey tummy is a separate thing. Tell us about the forage project. Rhea, that's your area. Well, you're referring to the bee industry strategy that yes. was launched in 2018. Um, look, that was an incredibly ambitious project, and I think to some extent modelled on a similar initiative that was launched by Barack Obama when he was president of the United States. Uh, as I say, incredibly uh, ambitious, well-intended, um, but just too many issues, it's got bogged down in too many issues and has barely got off the ground, if at all. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I'm just concerned that um, it, it, it was just too immense for it mm -hmm. to be practical. Um, and I know some of our leading bee scientists think it's a non-starter. Yeah, I'm, I'm the chairperson of that um, bee forage working group at the moment. 
and it is ambitious uh, ambitious um i think it's it's really is too big so what we did is um western cape started with a meeting with government where we actually put everything on the table you know beekeepers don't have our own ground i visited the farmers um, many farmers to find whether there is available land and they've got available land but no water you can't plant anything because uh, we are in a drought area, um, time and they said every millimeter of water need to go to their plants and they can't even water all their plants okay so uh, their trees and then the other thing is um, government said look they don't have the western cape government they don't have um, land yes and the land that they've got we are lowered down the chain in the in the also, because they need to make sure that for housing and for previous disadvantage. So the cake is just so big. And that's where we then sit. And we had to go to plan B. And because um, you need to plant bee forage. Eucalyptus is cut down. You can't get that stopped. We need to, to get groups to work together. So for land, we need to go to national government. And... Um, to get that approved and then on the other hand our bees also need eucalyptus because there's a certain time of the year as i said to you from january onwards which is very warm and nothing else flowers really but there's also water scarcity i know that uh, sanby they deal with certain they uh, and mike also was very involved in the project project with the working on water where they actually said Okay, these trees are trees that you can plant. But if you look at what the people uh, cut off, it's huge, huge trees that according to legislation was not supposed to cut off. Nobody come and help you with that, uh, the fight against that. And the, uh, the contractors just say, sorry, we have to remove. So this is, uh, this is, the project is then divided in different things. So we need to go on that um, fight for that as well. I chat to somebody that we want to appoint it as as a um, project manager. Um, we are busy then appointed with that uh, that appointment, and then for now, for a like emergency thing, we have to get bees food, and the only way bee forage, the only area because you can't plant when the the deciduous fruit. Uh, when they flower because then that plant compete mm. uh, is, uh, sorry the only uh, short thing now is cover crops that's the only way we see open and Mike also agreed with us that we should just go with that cover crops thing um, and especially in the vineyards because they don't know, need bees for pollination we had the discussion with Finbro and actually uh, Bulan Kellis as well with the farmers and they were quite positive with it because most of those farmers also have um, pollination units or friends with pollination units because you can't you can't plant it at the, in the deciduous areas because it compete and uh, with the cover crops uh, the wines have to you know they in any case plant cover crops so we're just trying to get to the stage where instead of this thing that need to do the cover or need to uh, loosen the soil plant this plant, which is a bee plant. And with that, we work with Barenberg, because obviously they've done the most research. With whom? Barenberg seeds. 
Okay. So they partner with us on that. And we are just the person asking for uh, the link between Vinpro and the farmers. And then, obviously, we, we need to bring in somebody that they trust, which is Barnberg, because they work with them quite a long time. Anybody drafting with them. And then um, it's like, it's really like just the emergency thing. Yeah, the, the encouraging thing is that there has been quite a big mindset change in recent years about the propagation mm -hmm. of cover crops in, in places like vineyards. And the, the clear benefits of having uh, cover crops for farmers in their vineyards. And what our job as WCBA is to encourage more and more farmers to uh, start planting cover yeah. crops. But it's, quite frankly, at the moment, it's putting an elastoplast on a, a, yeah, a, a, really on, on really, a gaping wound, yeah, yeah, quite frankly. It's really, um, but it needs to be done. I mean, have you, spoken, have you spoken to the table grape industry? Yes. Yeah, we are busy with that. Uh, that and, and funny enough, out of that, you see, when people are excited, because now it changed to, especially with our wines, uh, our honey did so well, and even some of our uh, meats in South Africa with uh, uh, the one one gold, the Western Cape one, also in the Africa conference, in that honey show. So uh, there's quite exciting things. So they can plant cover crops to assist the commercial beekeeper with his, and then give uh, yeah, to um, actually give apricides for commercial beekeeper to prepare for pollination, or they can plant cover crops and they can perhaps host a development beekeeper and becoming um, producer uh, award-winning honey. So this is one of the two things. And then what evolved further, and that's what I so like, um, then farmers start phoning me. I said, why? Okay. What is the trees that we need to sit uh, to work together with? Now I need to have a meeting. I need to have a um, a person that drive this project because you see that we've got so many work to do in the industry, and that's why we are approaching somebody now and I'll introduce him then to my the working group committee, and then they need to decide what further on because there's now farmers coming in and said, okay, let us see what trees do be needs when and that I need specialists on that. Obviously, um, the group need to decide on that. My working team need to decide on that. So yes, with the amount of hives, um, if if Mike um, the research said two hectares per hive, then it's tremendous amount of forage that we need to plant. But the other problem, so Riet, is is it's all very well to plant these trees, but this is a long term solution. Yeah, trees works. don't start become becoming nectar producing mm. trees overnight so no, we're no, talking no. about like five eight years we're talking about a strategy as Riet says five to eight years what worries me in the interim is uh there's little understanding around the policy of just the wholesale removal of eucalyptus trees mm. the issue around eucalyptus trees is a lot more or gum trees is a lot more nuanced than many people are willing to accept that it is not necessary to cut down every eucalyptus tree that you have in your land. Yes, one of the, the key areas that uh, eucalyptus trees need to be removed from are watercourses. Um, but very but often... The, there was a question because she said that they went in and cut down everything. Yeah. I mean, where, I, the, where the mandate said something different. Yeah, where yeah, it's I not come, even close to a house or water area. Yeah, yeah. There are clear rules and regulations about what should be cut down and what can be retained. But 
pretty much I, I, I spend much of my time in the Overberg where I have a farm. And in the last five to six years, I've seen the rapid removal eucalyptus trees in areas where it simply isn't necessary to remove them to the point that I believe that large expanses of the Western Cape are being turned into deserts. You just do not see any trees for miles. Uh, and unfortunately, we also have this, this situation, once again, because of the lack of understanding around what needs to go and what can be retained, is that you have uh, what we call hotsmoses going from one farm to the next, mm -hmm. offering uh, to pay farmers X amount for uh, chopping down their, their eucalyptus trees. So many of these farmers are doing it uh, willingly because they don't yeah. understand the legislation around the removal yeah. of, of eucalyptus trees. And in the process, our indigenous Cape honeybee is suffering drastically because this is the vital food source for them, as Briet says, in the hot, dry summer months. Because thinking and looking at the Overberg is if you drive through there in canola time, which is roughly now, Early mornings, you see these green and gold fields with the mist and these pockets of eucalyptus trees. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. But that, as you say, is disappearing. Yeah, yeah. so it, it sounds. It sounds like there's so much that you've chatted yeah. to us about, but the the public often has no idea. They they know about save the bees, but there's yeah. so many things. I mean, as an as an organisation, it sounds like you've got quite a long wish list. We do, <laughs> and I sometimes also felt that um, it's like as a situation, we just try and fight. You need to fight for the bee here. You need to fight for fake honey there. You need to fight for the trees. And as if nobody, um, they actually just abuse the bee and use it for their own pocket. And and I say that because I, I hear about the eucalyptuses and I hear what they say, but I've got proof that um, I spoke to a, far, a, a, a contractor that was actually furious because um, <coughs> he, can't, he can't cut um, eucalyptus because they export it by the loads, by the, really, for wood. Now, they, the, it's a very so, smart thing. Sorry, for firewood or for like poles no, 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 and no. stuff? They sell it. Okay. They sell it abroad. For, abroad. It's used for all sorts of products. Yeah. And it's, uh, so tell me, do they really cut it? Just like he said now with the wood, is it really necessary to cut that tree? Or is and he uh, he caught it very smartly. He get rid. Uh, um, I can't remember. He he sell the species. What do you call it? In, invasive, invasive, invasive species. But tell me, nobody want to export a poor Jackson up for black bottle. No. So what are the um, invasive? So that's where they then cut those that was not according to legislation. And if you make a noise about it, then they tell you, sorry, you have to cut it now. So this is, this is a whole story to me. Is it, did somebody start abusing the system or is it really? Last year at NAMPA, I did a submission to the Western Cape government um, and I essentially pleaded for some kind of moratorium on the just wholesale removal of eucalyptus trees. The key reason that, that all these trees are being cut down, but nothing is being planted in their place. Um, I was met with a response from the MEC of the environment, so just saying, well, we, we, we wouldn't consider a moratorium because it might confuse the public. Uh, but what is most confusing at the moment is this uh, 
view at the moment of just sitting on their hands doing absolutely nothing while uh, as i say our, our local bee industry which plays such a crucial role in agricultural pollination is literally on its knees because we do not get government support the bis strategy the bee industry strategy was a western cape government initiative and i'm getting quite critical here but there is no drive from the western cape government side at all uh, we are just simply a, a volunteer organization effectively uh, we don't have the political class obviously the politicians do and it's essential that we have <coughs> politicians with long visions to acknowledge what the problem problem is it's been told they've been warned about it time and time again but as we know politicians change and their priorities differ all the time mm. and as a consequence the something like the industry strategy just slips through the cracks um, so yeah as, as louise is saying that we we do have an enormous amount of work on our plate a huge amount i actually find it quite daunting from time to yeah. time you know your business is david ai exactly trying to pick up where other people have left off trying to give something f- uh, more momentum it's it's a, it's an all consuming preoccupation mm-hmm. really trying to to lobby and advocate for the, the western cape bee industry association and i i don't do this only by the way for honeybees which is we discussed at the outset of the discussion of my pattern but for the other the, the myriad other pollinators that we that we have in, in western cape what is afflicting the honeybee is also afflicting uh, all the other pollinators and the issue just really is not being taken seriously enough at governmental level so okay because we we are focused on agriculture and hopefully the people listening to our podcast are people in agriculture what what like louise asked what's the message for mr jones but what's the message for the for the farmers yeah for i the- you know we we are so reliant on on farmers as riet says i'm in a very fortunate position that i've got my own farm um, which is a fainbos farm um, but i can't be smug i work with a, a lot of beekeepers i serve a lot of beekeepers who don't have land to keep bees on they need the the support of the farmers um because in turn the beekeepers also <coughs> are providing a very valuable service back into the agricultural industry but we know that a lot of farms uh, you, you were talking about the canola they they look absolutely spectacular when they in, in full bloom but a lot of those farms are monocultural environments we understand why that, that is yes um but what we would try to encourage farmers is wherever possible just uh to support the the pollinators that uh, occur on their farms by planting bee friendly forage you know planting in in areas of non arable land possibly putting up trees and you know as we've already alluded to these are long term strategies but we've got to be doing something now because in 20 years time there will be nothing uh in terms of of our, our local honey bees and the wider pollinator population is there something that the, that growers can plant not just cover crops something like lavender for instance or basil or that attracts a lot of bees that provides quite a bit of food is there something like that there's a there's a lot of that but it's you know the, the problem is those are quite intensive um crops to plant if you ask a farmer to to uh, 
to 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 plant as you say lavender it, it, it's you know it detracts from all their other work yeah, yeah but not but but, but not but not to farm it on commercial level because no, sure, if you, sure. but if, if you, you if planted you, along fence lines yes if you drive into yeah. a lot of the the farms you'll see big lanes of palm trees and aloes yeah, and yeah. all sorts of stuff um i would rather say then go for in, instead of the palm trees go for another tree bee friendly tree um, there is, if you go to the Send Me book, uh, website, there is a booklet, uh, not a booklet, a book, Strelitzia 37, Strelitzia under slash 37. They can download it for free. And all the, um, the bee plants of South Africa is in that. And you can specifically check the pollen value and the nectar value. And it's important that you plant bees, <coughs> uh, trees, with a pollen and a nectar value at least three and up. Because um, otherwise, and then you need to check. Because as I said, the, the time when we need it the most is from January, November, December, January. But now, if something flower now, we've got enough uh, canola yeah, and everything. It doesn't help you think. And then the other thing is we really desperately need it to be, you know, the farmers need to take the project. And because then... The water is, when the tree is set, uh, uh, when it's grown or, or uh, big, then at least you don't have to water it. You can find its own water, not that much work. But there's also, we also, uh, from Western Cape side, we also need to look at other uh, eucalyptuses. That flower that is not on that list, um, that do not use that much water. And I was trying to find research that really showed me that eucalyptus really use that big amounts of water and I couldn't find it. So I've, I asked Mike also, but we have to get the research done on that. My other question is also, um, we need to go and investigate why certain countries in Africa removed eucalyptus and now by and, and mass planted back. Really, why do they do that? What is the experience? Was it really water? Um, we need to find out what the reasons are or what is perhaps the plant that is an alternative, a good pollen alternative for a nectar alternative for, for the eucalyptus. We need to find that. Mm. The, un the unfortunate thing in South Africa is that we have uh, relatively little research into honeybees, uh, despite uh, the stellar efforts of people like Michael Allsop. Countries, as I've said earlier, like the United States, which are... Uh, do beekeeping on an industrial scale, literally have armies of honeybee scientists. Um, and yeah, we have a small band, but we're just not getting the research that is absolutely vital to guide the industry. Um, and this, this is another issue that is really undermining efforts by, by the likes of the WCBA to grow the industry, because we're not getting the relevant information to assist us with the, the decisions and the policies that we work on and you have to wow. just like the you have to just like the uh, the people that um that now cut trees but in fact they they do not cut the eucalyptus because it's in an area that is not supposed to be but it actually to export it because they get a lot of money for the honey for the wood that's exactly the same um i want to base what i say on facts and i can't find the research facts so is it really relevant 
Sure. And that's uh, that's what what we need to respect. We need to sit around the table and we need to respect each other. And we need to get collectively because we can't work on our own. We try, but it's like it's like you know, all those negative things. Mm. Fighting against the wind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how it felt. And it's only the 10 of us. Mm. And you also had your own business. Your businesses see it. Um, you really don't make it. So we. Re- it's as if you need so many assistants, assistants, um, People that help with that, with honey, and people that help with the PR, people that help with the um, research here. We need to get the money, and that's why we then want to change to the public benefit, just to get money yeah. to, to, to appoint people to help us well, with all this. Well, good luck with that change, because it sounds like we've been chatting for a long time now. And as you say, as you, we started the discussion, and you said... There are a lot of people that are really fascinated and, and would like to help, but they don't know where to start. Just like we, we heard about, we know about Save the Bees, but how, what, where, what are the problems? We haven't even got down the line yeah, with half the problems. Very quickly, this year we've also established a specific membership category, Friends of the WCBA. The people don't have to be actual beekeepers, but they have passion around uh, the conservation issues pertaining to our our, uh, capensis honeybee. So people can get involved with our lobbying work. Um, The money that we accrue as a consequence of their membership can go into important projects that we're engaged in. Um, I was going to think we... we, uh, We've also, uh, yeah, we, we really, people can also plant just ordinary people who feel that they might be helpless in the face of bad news around the plight of the honeybee, uh, you know, can plant bee-friendly plants that we've been we've been talking to. I do want to, uh, uh, do hasten to add that um, our honeybees are not in the same predicament that honeybees elsewhere in the world are because of the pests, diseases, overworking, loss of habitat. Uh, our two subspecies are in relatively good health. What is absolutely fundamental, uh, a fundamental challenge to us and our bees is lack of forage. And if we don't have forage, the bees are going to get sick, sick eventually. So it's, it's, it's basically a, a, a train accident that's waiting to happen. Thank you very, very much. It's been very interesting. Do you have a question? I do. I, I wonder if it's not being answered already, but we can have a go at it. Um, <clears throat> we asked the previous people to give a question for the next people. They don't know who it's for, and you don't know who it came from. It could, and it's not going to go out in chronolo- chronological order, so it could have been from anybody. Their question is, what are the non-tariff trade boundaries affecting your business? They also export products, and they've got certain. Kind of answered that one. Yeah, it's been well. Essentially, it's been we don't answered. have an export market. Yes, <laughs> at the moment. So um, no, I can't. What you explained was actually the trade barrier. Yeah, yeah. Yes. it was yeah. the trade barrier. We are working um, with Western Cape government. They really been backwards, and we've got the in trade industries. We set up a meeting. Um, it's the 1st of August? In August? Yes, in August. Beginning yeah. of August. Somewhere in August, I must just check. We, we don't want to date the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, people are going to keep us to it. But yeah, um, they're going to help happening. us. Yeah, they help us with that. And that's nice. From the Western Cape government, we really 
get that kind of support, they, they will help us. Well, and primarily because a lot of our beekeepers, through no fault of their own, are sitting on stock. Um, the, as we've been talking in this, this podcast, um, discussing in this podcast, uh, is South Africa is awash with cheap foreign honey, much of dubious origin. And so uh, beekeepers, a lot of beekeepers are unable to move their excellent quality honey in this country. That's not the only reason. Um, you know, sometimes it's, uh, honey is a relative luxury good. It's, it's not cheap. And, you know, when people are going through tough times, they may cut backs like buying a, a jar of premium honey. So it's not just a simple issue. There's a lot of uh, nuances to it. But uh, we have to absolutely have to find other markets to assist our beekeepers. Because as I've, I've kept saying in this discussion, if we can't help them in important areas of their business, their businesses are not going to be sustainable in the long term, and that's going to impact on the provision of pollination services. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for an incredibly interesting discussion. I'm pretty sure we discussion. can go for just as I know. Long. It's, it's <laughs> absolutely fascinating, and we really appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.